Good morning. Hi. <laughs> All right, the scripture this morning will come from two passages, one in Colossians and one in Nehemiah. We're going to start in Colossians. It's a longer one, so if you want to pull out the Bible with me, um, we're going to be in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 23. You can find that on page 1791 in the Bible, the pew in front of you. Colossians 2, 8 through 23. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up by, with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Then if you want to flip back with me to Nehemiah 8, verses 8 through 12, you can find that on page 691. Nehemiah 8, 8 through 12. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. 
Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the, calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. <coughs> Thanks, Becca. Right, did, did anybody cry when I shared stories with somebody? Not even Lisa? Okay. I... I heard two stories about people fighting cancer with joy this hour. And I don't, I can't tell you the other story I heard last hour because I didn't get Becca's permission, but I wish I could because I'd, I'd probably start crying right now if I told you. But maybe another week, we'll, it'll be a sermon illustration. Um, you can do that anytime you want, right? Okay, so the first series of the year we talked about um, fighting for joy and kind of how that works and happens, and I can't go into all that right now. Because I have a lot I want to say to you today. And so this next series, we're going to be talking about the rhythms of joy. That is, that God wants to give us joy in Christ through certain means or in certain ways. And those ways have certain kind of rhythms to them, certain kind of feels to them. They're, they, they're within certain kind of structures and they have certain kinds of dynamics. And if you say, I want joy in Christ, but I won't accept any of that stuff, you're going to be miserable. You'll be miserable. And so that's why I'm going to cover this, because I don't, I don't want you to be miserable, and Jesus doesn't want you to be miserable. And so this stuff's important, okay? So you might say, okay, Nick, why study the festivals? Now, you may not know anything about the Old Testament festivals, and I'm actually not going to read Leviticus 23 this morning. So if you have a quiet time, this week, I want to encourage you to study Colossians chapter 1 and 2, and read, at least read once, Leviticus chapter 23. And if you don't have a quiet time, like a time you read the Bible and pray and think about what you read, it's a great time to start. I just assigned you like three whole pages of reading. I don't know if you can do it all in one week, but sound out the words. You'll get there. Okay. So, um, in the Old Testament, there are a number of festivals, and you can see these referred to in this, right, where Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. That's the food laws of the Old Testament, mainly, right? Now, it's broader than that, but we'll get into that some other time. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, if you read the Jewish Old Testament, um, there, that's three very specific designations. There are f about five major festivals in the Jewish calendar. Every month, there's a celebration of the new moon day, because you made it through a, another month. You survived another month, and that's by no means assured. It's a celebration every month. And then every week, there's a celebration of rest, that God is God, not of slavery, but of rest. People come out of Egypt, the land of slavery, and God says, you're going to work six days, but you are not going to work one day because you need to rest, right? And that's a, that's a celebration. It's a, it's a weekly holiday, okay? Now, it, you may have picked this up when um, Becca was reading that passage out of Colossians, that ch the end of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 of Colossians is a warning, where the Apostle Paul is writing to people he'd never met, and he says, listen, I want to warn you about some stuff that's really important. 
right? One is about, about judgment. He's like, don't receive the judgment of others when they want to judge whether or not you're in or accepted by God on the basis of what philosophy you believe in apart from Christ, what mysticism or spiritual stuff you do apart from Christ, or what laws or moral commands that you have in a group that you follow apart from Christ. Because none of those determine whether or not you're accepted with God. What, what matters whether or not you're accepted with God is if you belong to Christ. And so you, if you accept people's judgment when they say, you're out because you don't do this thing, or you don't think this thought, or you don't do this mystical thing, he says, what happens then is they just end up disqualifying you because they say you're out, and then you believe them. See, that's the critical point. You can't believe them, right? Because if you believe them, then you'll be like, well, maybe I am out, and maybe God doesn't. Love me on the basis of Christ's death alone. And maybe that's not okay. And maybe, right? At which point you will disqualify yourself by giving up faith, right? The second is, um, he says, listen, all those practices don't do anything to change anybody, right? So if part of what Jesus saved us for is to not just to redeem us from guilt, but also to change us into godliness, he says, look, these practices, whether it's these non-Christ-centered philosophies, non-Christ-centered mystical or spiritual practices, or non-Christ-centered sets of rules, whatever those, whatever they are, they don't have any value in restraining the flesh or sensual indulgence, right? Like, so all the stuff you want to do that is opposed to what God made you for, all those practices, they don't change any of that, right? And so that's a problem because they don't do what they say they do, and that that's a real problem, too. And then also he says, look, you need to just not believe in any of those hollow and deceptive philosophies, those religious rules or regulations that aren't related to Christ, or those mystical experiences. Because if you do, those will get you away from the real center, which is Christ. And all three of those areas are critical for you. Okay? Now, the question you can ask, though, when you look at those things, you'd be like, that's a lot of stuff. So play, you got to play Sesame Street, Right? Why did—what do they all have in common? Why did—why did the Spirit inspire the Apostle to include all these together, right? And if you go a little earlier, this is why I said study chapters 1 and 2 next week. In chapter 1, he talks about this, right? He says—so he's talking about what they've received in Christ and who they are in Christ, right? So he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So you really were alienated from God. You were separated from Him, and you didn't like Him because your evil behavior didn't let you like Him because He likes good stuff and you didn't like good stuff, and so you're just enemies because of your internal sinful philosophy, right? He's like, but— now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, right? So you're holy or set apart from him, his. You belong to him and he belongs to you. You are without blemish. That's not a legal word, right? That's a condition word, right? I don't want that new car. It's blemished, right? I don't want that apple. It's got a worm in it, right? So he sees you as whole, in good condition in Christ, and free from accusation. Free from his own accusation, which is the accusation that really matters, but it free from all other accusations as well. That nobody else has his grounding to accuse you. Does that make sense? And then it says this. There's this very important word right there. Do you see that word? If you like repeating after people or saying things with people, say it with me. If. There were like four of you. That's great. If. Right? And then I want you to see that he uses four different language markers for perseverance. If you continue in the faith, established 
and firm, not moved from the hope held out to you in the gospel. Do you see that? There's four of them. That's really important. Because if, if you want to say something, you repeat it. And if you really want to say something, you repeat it and you use different words. And so the whole crux of the argument in Colossians in the first two chapters is the reason I'm telling you all these things you need to be careful of is because I want you to make it to the end. See, the whole thing's about perseverance. The whole, the whole epistle is about these people making it, right? So the thing that they all have in common is all of, the, all of those things, whether it's receiving judgment, believing in sanctification through works or mysticism or philosophy, or falling into those philosophies themselves, the reason why those are all fundamentally important to be warnings is because all of those will, will cut your anchor line in relationship to your faith in Christ, and you won't persevere. They're all perseverance killers. Let me explain that metaphor to you for a little bit. So I used to do a lot of spearfishing diving when I was in Florida, and I would do it with a guy, and oftentimes we would both dive, and we were the only two guys in the boat, so we would leave the boat like unattended, right? And, you know, sometimes we're like 25 miles offshore, and the thing is no, no diver ever comes back and finds the boat not there because the metal anchor breaks while they're down. I mean, that doesn't really happen. If you come up and the boat's not there, other than pirates, right, the reason that happens is the, the line going to the anchor, something happened with that. Right? So there's this bolt that people use that when the anchor goes up and down, if you don't like weld it shut or something like that, it actually can slowly untwist the bolt and then come out and then off you go and your anchor's still stuck in the bottom. There's nothing wrong with your anchor, right? Or um, sometimes they'll put, they'll put the anchor down and they'll hook it, the anchor will catch in a reef and then the line will go up over some coral, right? And then the boat's going up and down on the waves, and it slowly cuts the anchor line. The guy in that picture, apparently, his, the reason he's smiling about his anchor line being cut is apparently a whale broke it, which was exciting. <laughs> That's not normally what happens. I once had a friend, Jack McDougall, who's the guy who taught me how to scuba spearfish. He once was in South Florida, and, and that bolt thing came undone. And he comes up, and his boat is like 160 yards away. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. And he swam after his boat. I can't remember. It's like between six and eight hours. I can't remember how long he swam after that thing before he got it, right? And so I loved diving with him because what was not going to happen to him? That, <laughs> right? So I never worried about it. But you see, in some ways, you see, the anchor of Christ is never going to break. The danger for you spiritually is not that the anchor of Christ is going to break. If your boat, the boat of your faith gets unmoored, Something's going to happen to the anchor line. That which connects you to Christ, how you believe, what's going on between you, what you think he's doing, how you think he's doing it, how these things work, what's true, what's not, all of that. All of that that happens between you and the real Christ, that, if you're going to have a problem, that's where you're going to have a problem. Do you understand? And you see, that's what, that's what the apostle is saying in this context. He's like, look, if you're going to have a problem, that's where you're going to have a problem. And we need to focus on that, right? Because otherwise, you're not going to persevere. Because, look, if you let people judge you, you'll doubt. That doubt will ultimately break your trust, and you'll get severed from the anchor. If you do things that you think are going to transform you that don't transform you, right? What is that? What is that? That's futility, right? Like, if you think coming to church without Christ being at the center of whatever you're doing, or if you think reading your Bible— without Christ being at the center, the gospel being at the center of that. Or if you think you can pray and that's going to do anything to you, if Jesus 
isn't the center of that. Like, if you, if you do it without the fullness of Christ being at the middle of it, none of those things are going to do anything for you. None of them are going to change you at all. And then you're going to be like, this stinks. And so some people persevere longer than others. Like, for some people, they'll persevere for like 20 minutes, and then they'll quit. And then other people, they'll persevere for like 20 years and quit. But, but listen, this is what human beings do when they experience futility. You know what they do when they experience futility for the length of time that their endurance goes for? What do they do? They quit. And why do they quit? Because that's the rational thing to do. That's why they quit. Because it's futile. Like they've been doing something that doesn't work. They don't know why it doesn't work. This stinks. And so they quit. And one of the reasons why people quit on Jesus is not because the anchor breaks. It's because the anchor line's all wrong. They have no idea how Jesus gives the gifts he gives. Right? That's why there's so many Christians who believe that they're Christians and they're, try- they're still trying to earn their salvation somehow. They feel like Jesus is still angry at them and if I do a little bit more, blah, 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 they have no ability to receive grace and so they hate actually following Jesus and it's terrible and it's not happy at all. And it doesn't work. It's futile. And people give up on futile things. They don't persevere. And then, if you believe in one of these philosophies, spiritualities, legalisticnesses, and that gets you uncentered from Christ, you're cutting your own line to the anchor, right? By getting moved away from the truth. So you might say, okay, Nick, I don't really understand what this has to do with the festivals other than that the Apostle Paul explicitly mentions the festivals in chapter 2 as something we have to be careful about. So then why would we then go and do a series on the festivals? That doesn't really make sense. I mean, Paul literally says they are a shadow of the things to come that have now come in Christ. Why don't you just preach about Jesus? Can't you just preach about Jesus? And the answer is, I can preach about Jesus, but this is why. You got to think a little bit about the utility of shadows, right? Now, some shadows are, are like, they, they don't look like the thing that they're a shadow of, right? So like, these two women make a gorilla, right? Or that. Right, you didn't see that, did you? So, that's pretty funny. Right? Okay, but then there are some shadows that actually look just like, like, you're not really wondering what that is, probably. Right? Could be statues of people or could be people, but it's people. Right? And you see, what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's not saying it's a shadow, there's nothing to it, you can't see anything. It's worthless. What he's saying is, is he's saying it is a, in some ways it'll show you the shape of the real thing, but it doesn't, the substance isn't in the thing itself. Right? The substance is in Christ. But here's one of the problems with that, is that that's, that shadow is actually really helpful for us because we're sinners and because we have all kinds of biases about what we think Jesus ought to look like. Okay, so we come to the Bible with all of our sinful biases or cultural biases or whatever, and we think Jesus ought to look a certain way. And so we'll read the Bible naturally affirming the way we, the shape we think Jesus ought to be. And so sometimes it's helpful to go and look at the shadow and to see the shape of that and to see if that shape goes along with the shape in our heads that we've got of Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? So the the shadow will point out something about Jesus, which is great, but it will also check our internal picture or shape of Jesus and tell us if we have a monstrous idol we call Jesus in our minds— or whether the Jesus that's in our mind that we think we've taken from the Bible and the shadow that the festivals in the Old Testament lay out for the, for the shape of God's character match. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, so then what do the festivals tell us? And I think that um, 
Nehemiah and Ezra summarize this incredibly well. So if you don't know much about the history of the Bible, God brought the, brought his, the Jewish people out of Egypt, which was a land of slavery for them, into a desert in which they lived in makeshift shelters, temporary shelters, and God had to give them food or they'd starve. This food is called manna, right? And sometimes they liked it and sometimes they didn't. And then finally they came into the promised land, which was the land of freedom. And when they came to the land of freedom, they got—they already had the law, and they were supposed to live a certain way, and it went fine for a while, and then it got worse and worse and worse. And then he actually punished them by sending them into exile. Babylon came and destroyed everything, took them into exile, which was a very difficult thing, because 70 years later, a group of Israelites then, Jewish people, decide and are freed by that king to go back and rebuild Israel. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but I mean— It'd be a little bit like, okay, and I know that this is not a likely geopolitical scenario. It would be a little bit like India conquering the United States, okay? And everybody in the United States being moved to India to live there for two generations, okay? Now, you haven't been to India. This may not be helpful, but like there's, there's, hard, there's no churches. There are Hindu temples everywhere. Everything's orange. It, is like, it literally feels to a lot of Americans like they have— like it's, it feels like another planet. I mean, you don't understand any of the languages. People don't look like you if you don't look Indian. And, like, it's a very different—the climate's different. The diseases are different. The, the structures—every human structure is different, right? Very different. And then there's children and there's grandchildren. Seventy years later, people who have never seen America, right, are free to go back. And some of them go, you know, we're going to go back. Like, we're ancestrally from there. And then they come back, right? And what kind of culture do you think they'd set up? Well, probably a pretty Indian one or like a mixed, like, Indian, like, strange sort of thing, right? And then somebody whips out the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and reads it, you know? And the people are like, what, what is that? Right? Now, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are not divinely inspired documents, okay? Yeah, I mean, it's for real. Um... <laughs> So, that was great. So, um, so, so Ezra gets up and reads the Bible to these people who've basically never heard it. Okay, these are Jews. This is the word of God for their people, but not just like how they should behave. It's like how their society should be structured, how their families should be structured, how he should and shouldn't be worshipped, all of that, right? And Ezra reads it to them, and there's all these like pastors and priests in there telling them this is what that means, this is what that means, right? And the people basically realize they're not doing any of this, like nothing. They're doing the sacrifices wrong. They're not celebrating anything right. They're not obeying the commandments. They're—I mean, just— Nothing. And, and the whole success of their rebuilt civilization, they believe, depends on this God blessing them, right? And they're like, oh, this is really bad. He must hate our guts. And so they realize they've—these guys have bet everything on building this new society. They've bet everything their whole life on this. They've traveled 700 miles. They left everything that they knew. And they came to this place they'd never seen in their lives. And they—and now, and now they find out— that the God who sent them here is probably going to kill them. <laughs> and so they start like openly, loudly weeping in masses. They're like, it's all over. It's all over. Everything's lost, right? And so Ezra doesn't go like a good pastor would. You, you better believe it, right? 
You better believe it. There's the altar call. Come up to the altar. You can repent over here. Let's do some sacrifices. Maybe if we kill like every bull in a 57 mile radius, like God will let this thing go. Like I don't know, but we're all dead, right? I mean, honest to God, that's probably what I would have done. I don't look at this and go, yeah, I would have done, I would have done that what Ezra did. So what Ezra does is like, no, stop, time out. Time out. Do you know what today is? And it was the first day of the Festival of Booths, which is the festival that celebrates God giving his people a home from their temporary homes and God giving them a harvest to eat instead of manna. Right? And he says, it's the first day of the festival of harvest and the festival of booths. This is not a day to cry. This is a day where God has commanded us to be happy. So quit crying. This day is too sacred for your crying. Turn your hearts to God and be happy because he blesses those who obey him by celebrating. Because here's what you need to understand. You're right. We have to rebuild our families, and that's going to take more energy and more strength and more power than we've, we, we have. And, it's, and we're going to have to rebuild a civilization. We're going to have to literally rebuild a wall and rebuild a temple and rebuild our lives. And we're going to have to recut this land, and we're going to have to redo everything. And the only way we're ever going to do this is if we are strong. We're going to have to be some of the strongest people this world has ever seen. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Strongest thing in the universe, in the human being, is joy. And not just any joy, specifically the joy that comes from the Lord. And that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so, if you want to summarize the message of the festivals, if you want to summarize the shape of the, of the shadow of Jesus that is cast by the living risen Jesus onto the, the ground of the canvas of our minds by the festivals, it is the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, a thing has changed. The risen Jesus stands before you. It's the exact same thing. In Christ, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is the shadow where the fullness is Christ. Right? And so that's also our new memory verse. Right? So 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is what? Be joyful. How often? Always. Right? Romans 12. 12a is be joyful in hope. Right? Be joyful in hope. And then Nehemiah 10. 8.10b is the joy of the Lord is our strength, is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, so that's great. But like all large, true, general statements, right? What has to come home roost is like, well, how though? But how? Right? And I want to look at, I want to look at four basic things that are wrapped up in the rhythms or the time of how the celebrations go. Okay, so the first is that God loves joy. We tend to think that God loves holiness or that God loves love, but love has a lot of sacrifice in it, right? But what the, what, what, 
what this section of the Old Testament teaches us, which is the shadow of what was to come in Christ, is that God loves joy. And he loves joy a whole lot more than we generally think. And you might think, well, Nick, I believe that God loves joy. So there. And my question is, yeah, well, what do your emotions think? Right? Because I know a lot of people, I would consider myself a citizen in this country, that think God is joyful and God is good and God approves of those who he has counted just in Jesus through faith. Right? And yet, I walk around like he's an unpleasable person. Like he probably doesn't like me that much. He probably doesn't like you that much. Like that's, that's what comes up reactionally in my feelings, usually. Right? And, and yet the whole, the whole Bible lays out to say the opposite. I mean, God is very intolerant of that proposition because it makes him look terrible. And he's the most beautiful thing that there is. God loves joy. Like, the story of Exodus is basically this. Human beings are in the land of slavery. There is no joy. They are miserable. They're so miserable, they're accepting genocide passively. Now, that's miserable, okay? How miserable do you have to be for people to say, just kill all your boy children, and you're like, okay. You understand? That's miserable, okay? And then God lifts them out of it, right? And he doesn't lift them out of it for the law. It's not like they were in the land of slavery and they get out of the land of slavery to the land of the law. No, that's not what he does. He lifts them out of the land of slavery into the spacious land flowing with milk and honey, right? I mean, milk, milk and honey, that's a very specific metaphor, right? Like, you just feed the cow, the cow gets some milk and just like gets some water and some food and they just keep making milk. Right? It just keeps, or like, I mean, think about bees for a second. Just for one second, okay? Like, nobody has any idea how long these things have been around for. They're the most OCD creatures that could possibly be. And they produce a food that after all of the technology of humanity, we are yet to improve upon it. It, like, has healing properties. It doesn't destroy your pancreas. It's amazingly tasty. It can have 70 different kinds of tastes. It's, it's good for your allergies, if it's local, supposedly. <laughs> right? And you can take, like, not eight-ninths of the honey that the bees produce, and they can eat out the rest of it, and they're fine. You're like, who, do, who is that productive? I was at somebody's house the other day. I was having tea. And I used like a tablespoon of honey, right? And I was like, they were like, how are you feeling? I was like, I feel like a god, frankly. I mean, I'm drinking the life's work of like 40 beings in this cup of tea. It is unbelievable. I'm feeling like Zeus. Let's turn it into mead. Okay, that was too far. All right, so, so like, if you, okay, let's do some Bible joy math, okay? So Bible joy math. All right, if you go through the Bible, right, there's three week-long festivals. Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits is the first one. Um, Pentecost is the second. Penta, 50, right? It's the Feast of Weeks, it's called in the Bible, because there's seven weeks. Get it? Seven times seven, that's 49. 50th day is 50. So 50 days after the last festival is the first big harvest. That's the festival of weeks, later called Pentecost, right? And then at the end of the agricultural season, there's ingathering or Sukkoth festival of booths. So that's, they're each really eight-day festivals. And then you've got 52 weekly Sabbaths, 
right? And then you've got 12 new moon celebrations. Now, you've got a few deductions because you'll get some Sabbaths overlapping with some week-long festivals. But if you add it all up, that's about 82 festival days. 82. Alright? Now, if you scour the Bible for the mandatory festivals of, of fasting, right? Like, these are the times where you're supposed to be like, I'm terrible. God, there's so much to forgive me for. We have not lived up to your law. And you fast, and you pray, and you think about how terrible—because you are a terrible person, and you really focus on that, and really try to find the contrition that is that's rightly related to the majesty of God, right? Like, that's an important thing to do. And how often does God want you to do that? Like, Demand that you spend a day doing it, like one time a year, and you get the day off. Okay? Now think about this. You think about the picture of Jesus in your head, and you tell me when you look him in the face if he is an 82 to 1 joy God. You, a you ask yourself that. Because mine isn't. But I look that guy in the face, and he looks like the kind of guy who's like an accountant who throws a party on the side every once in a while. Like he's not, he's not that. But that is God. God is the one who takes a sinful people who were enslaved into a spacious land flowing with milk and honey and demands that they party almost a quarter of the year. Listen, you can take the most ridiculous shortened work week from France, okay? That we like make fun of of the limited productivity of like being able to work no more than 30 hours a week like back in the day when they had that, right? And be like, that's nothing! That's nothing compared to God. God's like almost a quarter of the time. Now some of those days you would also work, right? They weren't all days off. But a lot of them were, and then you were still supposed to celebrate the days you had off so you couldn't work all that much. Because God wanted his people to be happy. He wanted them to have joy. He wanted them to enjoy him, themselves. They wanted them to, him to see—he wanted him to, them, for them to see him as a God of joy. Right? You know what's also true? Okay, I probably shouldn't say this because the church will go bankrupt. But do you know what the purpose of the tithe was in the Old Testament? Like, we're like, oh, it was to pay for the Levites, which is to pay pastors, basically, and to help the poor, right? Which is true. A third of the time. Right? It says every third year, set apart stuff for the Levites and for the poor. And then well, what's the, what do you do the other two-thirds of it? Well, it just, it just happens that the harvests and the festivals line up exactly. And so what you would do is, is you would take your tenth, you would turn it into money, you'd go to Jerusalem, and you would spend it on the party. That's what it was for. And it literally says in the Bible, you can turn it into silver because it's hard to get all those animals or whatever, right? And it literally says, buy whatever you want. Buy meat or wine or other fermented drinks and rejoice with happiness in your heart to the Lord. That's what it says, okay? Now, I know we're Baptists or recovering non-denominational Baptists, but like that's— that's what the Bible actually says the tithe is for. Okay, let's think about that. Like, you would normally think, well, I gotta give my 10% to God, and then I'm gonna, like, maybe we could afford a vacation. And like, I get that, right? I get, right? And please don't spend all your tithe on your vacation, right? But do you, like, do you see the idea here? The idea was, no, the money you give to the church is vacation. In a way. 
Right? The money, the money that you spend worshiping and being together and making sure everybody had, no matter how poor they are, everybody has something to celebrate with and everybody comes together and we all worship God and enjoy life together. That's what the tithe was for. Did you know that? Right? He, he demanded you spend 67% of the money allotted to him on enjoyment. Dang it! Okay, now, I'm not saying that's what you do with all your giving or anything like that, so please don't. Um, in a minute, I'm going to talk about how what we do together is supposed to be a big celebration. Right? But I, I, it's like, you need to know this stuff. Like, it's in there. And I, listen, I've been a pastor for like 20 years almost now. Like, in some kind of ministry, I've never heard anybody talk about this. Ever! Right? I mean, this is scandalous stuff. I mean, when people talk about Jesus, like, sinners liking the kind of stuff he said, and you're like, well, when we Jesus got that stuff, sinners would like, um, it's right there. Right? Jesus said, look, it's not me that destroys fun. The devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come so people have life. And that's why I'm the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Sin, the world, and the devil destroy joy. Jesus came that we might have it fully, so he's willing to die and rise to win us to himself, right? Second is—oh man, I wish I could talk faster, or like I could think better. Second is, God loves a good joy, okay? He doesn't love a parasitic, hurting other people, sucking the life out of everybody else, stolen happiness. He doesn't like that kind. That's why there's laws in the spacious land, right? The spacious land, when it's full of thieves— and worthless people who want to kill each other doesn't—it can be as spacious as you want. It's not going to be good. There's not going to be any blessedness or peace, shalom. There's not going to be justice, right? That joy can only—if you have a image-bearing humans in there, you got to have some way they're all relating to each other so that a good and spacious land can produce good and spacious lives, Right? And so God doesn't just want a joy. He wants a good joy. He wants an honorable joy, a meaningful joy, a just joy, right? And so for God, celebration and solemnness go together, right? So you'll, you can see this in a couple of places, right? In Nehemiah, he says, the reason why you have to be happy today is because this day is sacred. That's a really important point. He says it twice. If you look at the book of Leviticus, that chapter 23 that I told you you should read this week, you'll see eight times in Leviticus 23 that as they get together for these festivals, he calls the getting together part a sacred assembly. Right? So for God, there's no division. It's almost like the joy that exists at like a really great Christian wedding. Right? There's a certain kind of sacredness, like a wedding has happened. Like it's— covenant that constitutes a family from which image-bearing creatures will sprout, right? That came from families in which lives are woven together. It's like this really beautiful thing that you're supposed to really passionately celebrate, right? There's this wholesomeness where these two things intersect, right? And so, like, think about this. You'd be like, okay, wait. See, the, the natural human tendency would be like, okay, we're supposed to have these parties, and they're supposed to be sacred. What people tend to think is like, oh man, that's going to ruin the parties. Right? It's going to ruin the parties, right? That's, that's, see, sin makes you think the opposite of the truth all the time. But the idea is, is that, no, sacred events are supposed to be full of joy. That's the idea. 
They go together, right? So when we have a time together, like on Sunday morning, right? It's a sacred assembly, which is supposed to be what? A celebration, right? I know it's annoying when people are like, let's clap our hands. And like, are you happy? Let the joy of this Lord rise among us, right? And you're like, why are we singing something descriptive? Because you won't do it. You won't do it unless you clap and you sing, may the joy of the Lord rise among us. And then maybe you'll pay attention to the fact that the joy of the Lord is supposed to be rising among us. And then if Debbie sings it like a hundred times, you may be like, oh yeah, like it's kind of, I can find, yeah, like a, it'd be great if we were all kind of like, yeah, all of us kind of happy together. It's the joy of the Lord. It could just rise up among us, right? It's bad. Look, it's, it's bad, you guys, right? Got it? All right. All right. Kind of running out of time. Okay. And it's all done before the Lord, right? Before, there's a m- bunch of these references. Do this before the Lord. What does that mean? If it's before the Lord, that means it's a fundamentally horizontal thing, right? It's with people. Right? Eat and drink before the Lord. So you're eating and drinking with other people. You're telling jokes. You're laughing. You're having a good time. You're telling stories. You're sharing your hopes and your dreams. You're telling people, right? But you're doing it with this consciousness that the Lord is looking on it and he's enjoying it. Right? Part of the purpose of the festival is not just your joy. God takes joy in giving creatures joy that's a good joy. Does that make sense? Okay, which is the third thing, which is God loves to give a good joy to creatures. Now, if you realize this, um, but if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that the, the Sabbath laws, God explicitly says that on the day of rest, you can't make your animals work, right? Neither oxen nor, you know, the, that word that you like to say at Christmas time. Like, none, you can, none of the animals can work. None of the people you call slaves can work. None of you—and you can't work. You can't make a slave out of yourself, even. You don't have the right to do that. Because you're a creature too. Just like your oxen and your donkeys are animals. And animals need to work to stay alive, man. Just to stay healthy, they got to do something. There's productivity, but they also need a rest. Right? And just like people that you think you have the authority to work, right? Like employees. They have to work, and then they need to rest. And you don't have the right to run yourself like a slave because you're a creature and you have to rest. You see, there's a lot of things built into the nature of what God commands of us that are based on the fact that we are not hovering mentalities. We're these embodied creatures that have feelings. And like, if you get too— what happens when you get too tired, right? You get crabby, right? So your immune system doesn't really work right. Your relationships don't really work right. Your feelings don't really work right. Your thoughts don't really work right. Nothing works right. Nothing works right. And if you don't take some time to like reflect, what the heck am I doing here? What's my life about? In what ways do I need to quit doing some stuff that's like wrecking my life and everybody else's life? And in what ways do I need to, right? And how does God relate to that? Okay, thinking that through openly before the Lord, knowing that God is there, that's prayer, man. And then you talk to God about it. That's prayer, right? Without that, you got problems. You got, you're not going to correct things, right? That's going to happen. If those kinds of things don't happen, creatures don't do well, right? There's so many Americans in particular, or Western people, that because of like the Enlightenment, because we're philosophical and scientific, like we think that we're like robots with minds, right? We treat our bodies like they're literally machines, right? I'm going to get it. I'm not going to eat any gluten, right? But I'm going to stay up all night watching Netflix. You know, you're like, what, what are you doing? 
You're not a, you're not a robot. You'll go to the doctor. I'll take some more medicine. Oh, yeah, I, I don't have any serotonin because I don't sleep and go outside, but I'm going to take these drugs because they'll keep the machine going. No, no, that's not how this works, man. You're a creature. Creatures need things like sleep and sunlight and a decent diet. You need to talk to other human beings. Stuff like that. And things like that make people healthier because you're a creature. And it's amazing when you like do some basic creature stuff. You're going to start feeling better. And you're going to feel less gloomy and more hopeful and more, less angry. People cut you off in the road. You'd be like, I love you, but I don't understand you. I mean, like that's what's going to happen. It's going to come from your heart. Right? Because God, listen, God is not going to love you like a robot. You can pretend your body's nothing but a machine, and God is not going to play that game. And you can pretend that you're nothing but a floating mind, and that you should be able to think your way or whatever, out of reason your way or whatever. It's not going to work. You are a creature who bears the spiritual divine image, and you are both of those things, and you got to live like you're both of those things. You have to find the joy of the Lord and turn to God in your heart and mind and pray and worship and seek God in spiritual things. And you've got to treat yourself like a creature who needs love and to feel security and to sleep and all kinds of stuff like that and to, and to have special times to be happy. Do you understand? Because God is going to give you a good joy, but he's only going to give it to you as what you are. Because do God doesn't play fantasies. He's always trying to bring us back to reality. Sin is always unreality. It's more than that, but it's always at least that. And God is trying to bring us back to reality. And one of the realities is you're not a god or a machine or a floating mind. You're a creature. And the minute you receive that, you can start moving in a particular kind of direction. And the last thing is that God loves to give good joy to creatures through rhythms. But if you look at these festivals, they're at the harvest times, and they're in the month cycle, and they're in the weekly rest and work cycle, and like all the stuff God does has these like these rhythms to it, right? Because creatures are creatures of rhythm. We're all, we have circuit, like think about it. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in Gulag Archipelago, he said one of the cheapest ways to torture people into insanity is just you just don't let them sleep. That's it. Like, they had whole, whole halls in the, in the pre-gulag interrogation areas where they'd have people kneeling in the middle of the hall, and if you tried to fall asleep, you'd get hit with something. They just walk, hit you with a rod in the side of the head, and just keep you awake. And he's like, it's only, from, he says, like, for most people, it only takes about 48 hours before you don't really know what's real and what isn't anymore. You have, most of us have no idea about how, how desperately human beings require sleep. And so he's like, you can torture somebody by just not letting them sleep. Why? Because that circadian rhythm, that rhythm of sleep and wakefulness is fundamental to what we are as a creature. And it turns out it's more than that. It's seasons, and it's growths, and it's aging, and it's having kids, and going through finding a mate, to fertility, to empty nesting. To, I mean, like this, our life is just full of all of these rhythms and cycles. And, but the cycles are all ordinary, right? They're all monotonously repetitive. And human beings are designed kind of to not pay attention to the repetitive and to look for what's not repetitive because that's the survival mechanism, right? Like if you, if you walk across the street, there's a thousand things going on. Like you can't pay attention to that bird because what you've got to look for is what? If there's a car coming from that direction, right? That's it. Everything else is blocked out. You're not—I mean, some guys are like, look at that pretty girl, and then you're going to die. 
right? That's why you're not supposed to have an earbuds, right? Because this is not the moment for Beyonce, right? This is like, is somebody going to hit me with a car? And so you, you're focused on that. There was this psychological experiment where this professor got college students and they watched this video and there were football players throwing football passes back and forth. And he's like, okay, so count how many passes. At the end, I'm going to ask you one question. How many football passes? And they go, okay. They watch the video. They get to the end of the video. How many football passes? Fifteen. And the, and the professor goes, great. And they're like, yes. And he goes, and then he goes, did you see the gorilla? And they're like, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He's like, watch the video again. So they play this video. There's football players, all right? And about a minute in the video, there's this gorilla, like a guy dressed like a gorilla, like running through the football practice, right? And the idea was to show that the human mind is designed to focus very specifically, especially on the things that change. Or the thing for some reason they choose to look for. But the thing human beings choose to look for are the things related to survival and security, which are the things that change that could threaten them, right? So what do they not pay attention to? Well, people doing stuff for them that isn't right in front of them. Like their spouse doing laundry for them. Somebody cleaning the kitchen when they're up putting the kids to bed. Stuff their employees do to support them that they don't see, right? I was thinking when Debbie was singing a while back, I was like, man— Debbie, that's so good. Debbie, sing that's so good. And I was like, and Sarah plays the cello? What the heck? Where did that happen? Right? That's so great. And then I thought, and I thought, because I'm this way, I was like, I bet the children's ministry is killing it, but like, I wonder if anybody's thinking about that, because I wasn't thinking about that, right? Why? Because they're over there. And like some of you like have kids, and your kids are in the children's ministry, but you're still like, Debbie's singing? That's, uh, yeah, I can, God can make me clean. That's so good, right? And your kids— your very hearts are over there. You're not thinking about that, right? Because they're over there. And you see, part of the deal with this rhythm thing is part of enjoyment is taking repetitive pleasure in the monotonous through intentional focus, right? G.K. Chesterton said, um, one of the great strengths of God is that he can rejoice in monotony. He couldn't make—he's like, he's like, how do we know that God just set up the genetics of daisies so that they would grow infinitely and keep reproducing? Maybe he wanted to make every single one. Maybe he makes every daisy, and he's, he's just not like us. It never grows old for him. Like a, like a kid who wants you to throw him up in the air, and then he wants you to do it again like a thousand times. Like he never gets tired of it. Maybe it's sin that makes us grow tired of things. Right? That was Chesterton's idea. Maybe it's sin that makes us grow tired of monotonous things instead of being in love with them. Right? I'll end with this. Um, there were a lot of religions in Canaan when the Jews came in, and a lot of people say, well, they all made sacrifices. All, all those ancient religions are basically the same. They're all based on superstition. But there was a very big difference between the two. A very big difference between the two. You see, the Canaanite religions, all of the Canaanite religions, and, and the Jews were explicitly told never to adopt the Canaanite religions because it would destroy them. All the Canaanite religions offered sacrifices, and they offered sacrifices in relationship to the agricultural year, just like the Jews did. But there was a very significant difference. The Canaanite religions offered sacrifices before anything happened. And you can understand why. I mean, it's a chaotic world, right? If, it, if there are gods, you, you wouldn't think, well, God made everything good, and then a, a curse came in, and God is working for redemption. If you were just making this up and, like, trying to figure out how this chaotic world will, you'd be like, there's probably gods who do whatever they want. Maybe we can placate them. And so they offered sacrifices so that the crops would grow, so that the animals would have young, so that all the things they needed to survive would happen. 
And so, and it got to the point where the, with, when they worshipped the god Moloch, they had this huge statue, and they'd fill it full of wood, and they'd burn it like a fire till it was red hot, and they would take children, and they would put the children in its red hot hands, and they would burn alive before Moloch, because if you were willing to sacrifice your own fertility, maybe Moloch would give you fertility in your fields, and with your animals, and with your flocks. Right? And so, you, know, you wonder why God was angry? about what had become of his people, because his people worshiped Baal and Asterisk and Molech. When you read that in your Bible, that the people worship Molech, you remember that that includes sacrificing their children. And the, the phrase in the Bible is often, they made their sons pass through the fire. That's what that means. It means they burned them alive in the worship of these idols, right? But think about this. What was, what was God's, what, what was, what was God's way of dealing with this, right? He never asked for that. Right? It actually says in Jeremiah, I think it's in Jeremiah, he says that not, not only did I never ask for it, it never entered my mind to ask for such a thing. He said, this is what I want you to do. After it grows, wait till it all grows. I'll make it grow. I love you. I want you to have 82 days of parties every year. I love joy. I love giving joy. I love creating creatures and giving them a good joy. I, I mean, I love all of that. So just let it grow. Just plant and, and harvest and plow and just do the normal work of a farmer. Just be a farmer, right? And when it grows, here's the sacrifice I want you to make. I want you to pick a bunch of it and take like a tenth of it and celebrate. I want you to be happy. That's what I demand of you. I demand that when I give you everything, that you would be happy. That you would choose happiness. That you would discipline yourself to be happy. That you would celebrate in the monotony. That you would choose to trust me. That you wouldn't slit your own wrists in overwork and hatred of your family, overtaxing your children. But that you just receive my goodness. And the, and the sacrifice I want is your happiness. I want you to celebrate these four times a year. I want you to celebrate every week that I don't make you a slave. I want you to celebrate every month that another month of faithfulness has passed. That's what I want from you. God loves joy. God wants to give you a good joy. God wants to give you a good joy as a creature. And God wants to give you a good joy as a creature through rhythms and cycles that are natural to your being and natural to his gifting. And you see, think about this. How are you to be prepared for happiness in heaven? Do you think God's going to come with some new weird novelty every minute for eternity? Why would he need to? What if instead we became the kind of creatures that were as strong as him in our joy that we actually didn't need novelties, that we saw them as distractions, actually? Maybe we would be ready to be happy forever. Maybe heaven's going to be very different than we think. And maybe we'll be best prepared for it if we receive joy the way he offers it. If we would look at the shape that is the joy of the Lord is our strength, that we would see that in Jesus. We would let that take the copper bull-headed top off of the Jesus we've created for ourselves and let him be the Jesus of the real scriptures. And live as people who know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us to believe that though you've called us to be joyful always, and you've said be joyful in hope, we pray that you'd fill us with that capacity through the means that you give us of rhythms as creatures 
in a good joy that you give because you are joyful yourself. Help us to see that before you called us to a law, before you called us to a behavior, before you called us to anything else, even before you called us to the cross, you made us for joy. And that everything you've done since then was to maximize joy, for us to see the beauty of your glory, for us to experience joy together, for us to be set apart for your eternal joy, for us to not kill each other so that we could maximize each other's joy. Would you help us to have the audacity to believe in that, to believe that we're creatures and to accept your rhythms and to see Jesus differently because of these things? And pray that you would grow that in us this next month especially. In Jesus' name, amen.